Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, hello, hello everybody. It's not on. Hello, you. Hello. Hello, oops, hi there. Why is it falling down like this? <laughs> Hang on, don't knock over this. I won't. Hello, everybody. We're about to start. Shh. Hi. We are not the usual audio people. Our audio person is on doing something else. <laughs> and we are in charge of figuring out. The mic is floppy. How, why is the mic being floppy? Well, do your, do your best. Then. I don't, uh-oh. Yeah. So how are we going to do this? Do you know how to do this? Or You're a musician. I'm you can, a musician, but you can this figure is not a musician's... Uh... Well, it never did that before, did it? It's sort of floppy. <laughs> you can hold it while you read? No, you can't. Yeah, that's that's going to be hard. Bad. All right, don't anyone touch it. Can you hear me? Okay. Hi. I'm Ellen Datlow, and that's Matthew Kressel, and we run uh, Fantastic Fiction at KGB, which is the third Wednesday of every month, and it runs 24... Uh, there. 12 months a year. 12 months a year. <laughs> yes. Uh, come rain or come shine or come cheerleaders outside, elephants above, um, or snowstorms. We still do it. So anyway, this month we have two fabulous readers. Before I introduce our first reader, um, I'm going to give away a copy, another copy. I did this two months ago, a copy of Echoes, my new ghost story anthology. But I figured out a way to do it. Last time I could not figure out how to give it away, what to do, you know, kind of contest or something. What I decided this time is we are, Matt and I are going to judge. You all have to come up with the best trivia question about ghosts and think about it when you feel like it. At the intermission, Matt and I, all right, no, not Matt and I, you will... Give us the whatever your opinion, you know, yeah, whatever your trivia questions are, and the audience will vote for you or not. And whoever gets, I don't know, the most clapping gets a book. Does that raise sound fair? Yeah. Or some, oh, we'll raise your hands, right. Um, so that's how we'll do it this time. All right, anyway, our first reader tonight, and oh, and our readers both have books with them that they will sell during intermission and after the reading, so please come on up and they will be happy to inscribe anything you want on their books. So, and we hope that, and do it, please come and buy them so they don't have to carry them home because they're heavy and I know what it's like to carry books home. <clears throat> Sarah Pinsker is the author of over 50 stories as well as the collection Sooner or Later Everything Falls Into the Sea and the novel A Song for a New Day, both out in 2019. Her fiction has won the Nebula and Sturgeon Awards and has been a finalist for the Hugo, Yugi, Yuji uh, Foster, Locus and World Fantasy Awards. Please welcome Sarah Pinsker. Hey there. So the last 
time I was here, we got heckled by a drunk Santa. <laughs> You're going to have to up your game a little. But I'd, um, I played a music gig on Saturday where I got heckled by a parrot. That was the first time ever. <laughs> so, so you definitely have to up your game now. Santa, parrot, it's been done. It's been done. Um, so I'm, what's that? It was a real parrot. It was an African gray, and um, and it spoke squirrel. It had learned how to speak squirrel from the squirrels in the area, and uh, yeah, so it just kept like kind of clicking at me, and and then um, eventually it got into it, and it was like dancing, like parrot dances, um, and and it stopped clicking. So so I guess it didn't like like the first song, but uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so I'm going to read to you a chapter from my new novel, which came out last week. It's called A Song for a New Day. And thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read you uh, the fourth chapter, which is a little odd, I suppose. But uh, it seemed to make sense to me. So the two things you need to know in order for me to read you the fourth chapter are uh, that this is one of Rosemary's chapters. Rosemary is someone who has grown up after a... Um, an unnamed thing. She's grown up in the after, after some stuff has happened. Uh, that has so she lives on a farm and she works in a uh, in something called a hoodie. Like everything she does is online. Um, every interaction she's had with people other than her family has been online. Uh, and she has just accepted a uh, a job that is going to let her go to her first concert, which is still an online concert. It's, it's like a VR thing, uh, but she's going out to a concert for the first time uh, for Stage Hollow Live, which is the company that sort of owns everything these days. I think that'll get you there. Rosemary spawned in a parking lot. The Bloom Bar's exterior carried a strange air of both welcome and get lost. Daisies and black-eyed Susans overflowed from beds on either side of the door and beneath the long, dark windows. The outer walls were yellow stucco, and both O's of bloom had been transformed into smiling flowers. The friendliness ended there. A sign over the parking lot proclaimed patent medicine to not SHL, Stage Hollow Live. A dry erase board by the door said the same thing, but without letters missing. Rosemary wondered why a virtual environment pretended to run out of letters for their sign. She guessed it added authenticity. For that matter, the entire parking lot was unnecessary, just another place for people with money to show off their gas-powered sports cars and unicorn-drawn pumpkins and whatever other virtual extravagances high-end hood space offered. Not that she'd ever been in any hood space this well-developed before. An avatar perched on a stool between two doors, at least ten feet tall, sized well past human. No, not an avatar, a non-player bot. Rosemary wasn't sure if he was security or a ticket taker or both. A A scanner sparkled on the wall beside him. Are you here for the show or the bar? The bot's tone was bored. The show? He nodded as if she had given the answer he expected, which she probably had. She couldn't imagine that people paid for the privilege of hanging out in a virtual bar if they weren't going to the show. Then again, there was a dragon tethered in the parking lot. People paid for all kinds of strange privileges. He looked at her as if she had missed something. Thirty dollars if you didn't pre-purchase, he said, and she guessed he was repeating it. I have a code. 
To get in free? Apparently her nerves turned statements into questions. I'm working for SHL, she said, attempting a sentence. Paste your code here. She opened her bag of holding and snagged the invitation, dropping it in front of his scanner. The bot waved her past. Door on the right. She guessed the left door was where the regulars went, whoever came here from the, for the bar instead of the show. This bar probably existed in the SHL virtual landscape, even when shows weren't going on for subscription holders' benefit. The ceiling dropped low as she entered, less than a foot over Rosemary's head, the passage narrow and dark. She made it ten more feet before she encountered another person on another stool, this one a tiny blonde woman. ID, said the woman. Averbot. Rosemary fumbled for her bag again, managing to open two other apps and a screenshot camera before she flashed her digital ID. Sorry, new hoodie. The woman was unimpressed. Bag. Nobody here spoke in anything more than one-syllable words. Rosemary opened access to her bag and waited while the woman searched it. It's just my wallet and camera and workstation. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to bring, you know? The woman gave her a strange look, enough to tell Rosemary she was an av, not a bot. I'm sorry, said Rosemary. I know I'm talking a lot. It's my first time here. First time at an SHL show, too, in case you couldn't tell. The woman handed her bag access back. There didn't seem to be any point to the security rituals. Maybe they added authenticity for those who remembered real places like this. Or maybe they were meant to dissuade people who brought virtual guns to virtual bars. As she moved past, the woman spoke again. You can only use your camera app for the first two minutes of the show. The first two minutes use a different format so people can take pictures with the band if they want and tell people they were here. After that, don't bother. The rest don't photograph well. If you keep trying, people will know you're new. Also, don't go in the bathroom unless you're looking for drugs or sex. Rosemary flashed a grateful smile. Thanks. She wasn't sure why anyone wanted to photograph a hologram or why a virtual club needed a bathroom, but she filed the information away. She blew her next moment of cool by pushing on a pull door. After passing door entry 101, she found herself in a room so dim she had no sense of the space's size. It felt limitless. She'd seen the building from the outside, but the outer dimensions didn't correspond to anything inside. This was SHL's world. SHL's world. Her eyes adjusted. The club was as large as any room she'd ever been in, but blander, like it hadn't been mapped over with any personality or style. No, on closer look, it was more than the black box that it had first appeared to be. There were layers, textures, black paint on black walls, black tape on black paint on black walls, strata of stickers upon stickers upon stickers on black walls, some with embedded links. The illusion of metal struts and lighting scaffolds far above their head and of grime on the scuffed cement floor. Staring at the Bloom Bar logo on the wall revealed a text scroll explaining how this was an amalgamation of several venues from before, not a recreation of any one in particular. There were also options for a list of bands that had played her in the past, and the full upcoming music calendar. She blinked it all away. The first person who crossed her sight looked like a lion, and for a panicked moment, Rosemary wondered if cat avatars had come back into style while she wasn't paying attention. They had been all the rage among those who could afford them when she was in high school, but after school and Super Wally work and after but after schools and work Super Wally workplace policies banned them, the fad petered out. On second glance, this was a man's avatar with a big teased halo of blonde hair. She scanned the room to see if that hairstyle was a popular one, but there weren't any others like him. All the seats at the bar down the long side of the room were taken. 
She studied the people on the stools, trying to pick up what to say. She'd only been in a bar one time before, for her 21st birthday, when her school friends had made her meet them for drinks. Real cocktails, which droned to her doorstep in mason jars nestled in protective packaging. The bar itself had been flat and boring, a generic Irish bar with outdated graphics and a glitchy interface made worse by her basic hoodie. She never cared to repeat the experience. She preferred chatting with friends in a game, or somewhere else where they had something to do while they talked. Her friend Donna had said the bar had history, like history was a selling point. The highlight had been the jar of vodka-spiked basil lemonade. She watched people at the bar order wine by the glass, bottled beer, cocktails in tumblers. Somebody walked away, and she pushed in to grab his stool, rested her elbows on the bar, careful not to let her hands touch it. It was virtual, but it still looked sticky. The bar itself held a shimmering menu that appeared when she was right on top of it, advertising a variety of drink, drinks and legal drugs, with two prices beside each, re real and virtual. When the bartender finally noticed her, she ordered a birch beer. Real or virtual? She was on the clock, and it took an hour for drones to get to her house anyway. V. V cash or Super Wally credit? Super Wally. She hadn't even thought that was an option. Excellent. The drink could be debited straight from her store credit account. The bartender pulled out a handheld and she passed her account number. He grunted and turned his back to make her drink. He'd have to hold the glass and scoop the ice, but the beer came out of a bottle. She wasn't really drinking it, she reminded herself. Any germs were virtual ones, too. If you use Super Wally, there's no way to tip him. He only takes V-cash tips, whispered the person to Rosemary's right. She turned. A black woman with a cloud of natural hair raised a phone to her direction and wagged it. If you're planning on having a second drink or coming back here again, throw a dollar or two in cash on the counter. He keeps track of who stiffs him. She hadn't even considered anybody would need to be tipped. Thank you, Rosemary whispered back, reaching for her wallet. When she looked over at the woman again, she was amazed to see that the avatar's face was covered with pox scars. Even at Super Wally, where abs were supposed to be photorealistic, she'd never seen one with scars. She hadn't even considered that it was possible, though if you could have a cat head, of course you could have scars if you wanted. Her hand went to her stomach, where her own scars were worst. She hadn't meant to stare, but now the woman was watching her, and she felt obligated to make more conversation. Are you a big fan of the band? I don't care who plays. This place reminds me of a club I used to hang out in. How about you? Rosemary shrugged. I like their music, but this is my first time seeing them. My first time seeing any band, actually. The Av brightened with enthusiasm. In that case, you should go get closer. Closer? Trust me. She pointed toward the room's center. A loose circle of people had formed around the stage area. If this were my first show, I'd be over there. The bartender handed Rosemary her drink in a red plastic cup. She made sure he saw his tip, then went in search of a good place to stand. The projectors, projections of projectors, really, moved in a circle above a clear area ringed with angled speakers. She guessed that meant the band hollow appeared in the center. She situated herself behind the largest group, under the assumption they knew what they were doing. This was the most people Rosemary had seen in one place since she was a kid, even in hood space. More than any of her classes or any party she'd ever been to, though in truth she preferred smaller gatherings. She wondered again if it was an unlimited space or if there were multiple iterations of the same bar or if it was coded to allow overlay. She could look, but she didn't want to know. The thought of somebody else standing in the same spot as her, even virtually, made her shudder. The room buzzed with voices, a baseline noise. 
Snippets of conversation drifted her way. Discussions of bands they'd seen, bands they wanted to see, bands they wished they'd seen, the weather where they were. She concentrated on their clothes, on what people put on their avatars in this place. She'd used her work avatar with her work avatar uniform, a polo shirt and slacks. She hadn't been sure if she was allowed to change into more casual clothes, given that she was here on assignment. Her real body wore her uniform as well, of course. A majority of the crowd wore t-shirts for patent medicine, or else for other Stage Hollow Live bands. One man had dressed all in feathers, another person in tight leather pants, and a skin that she was fairly sure she recognized as a celebrity from her parents' generation. She filed the information away for the future, if she ever got to do this again. Even if they didn't ask her for the fancy hoodie back, she couldn't afford a subscription, so it was a moot point. The dim overhead lights got even dimmer. The crowd cheered. Who were they cheering? It wasn't like the band could hear them. Rosemary hesitated, then joined in. It felt good to add her voice to a group. She'd never done that before. It left a pleasant vibration inside her. She'd done it in real space as well. She imagined what it must have been like in the old days when entire stadiums cheered together. The rig overhead whirred to life. Rosemary glanced up and was rewarded with a blinding flash. She looked back to where ghost gear now rested in what had been the empty space. A drum kit at the center, a couple of large amplifiers, three microphone stands, a rack full of ghost guitars. Somebody near the stage reached a hand out and chopped through a guitar neck. He disappeared a second later. There were penalties for disturbing the illusion. The lights flickered and a moment later, a musician stood holding the instruments. The effect was eerie. The original empty stage must have been a recording because there wasn't even a second's pause before they hit a chord. Out of nothing, music. Three voices and two guitars. They held the note for 10 seconds, then drums rolled over it. Rosemary had been to a wave pool once when she was five at a rundown amusement park in the before. She'd waded out into the water holding her father's hand. The pool was crowded and flat, full of people lounging in tubes in the lull between wave sets. She spotted something on the bottom, a nickel or a quarter, shining just beyond her reach, and released her father's hand to grab it. That was when the first wave hit, knocking her back toward the shallows. She surfaced lost and sputtering and terrified, but strangely exhilarated. The music hit Rosemary like a wave, knocking her breath from her, louder than anything she'd ever heard, filling every corner of her. One chord and she was full. Don't stop, Rosemary thought. Don't ever stop. The song shifted and she recognized it now. It was one of the songs she had checked out this evening before the show, but altered. The intro and the recorded version had been tame and tempered. She had thought it was okay, nothing special. She hadn't realized music could reach inside you. She pushed closer. Camera flashes went off throughout the room. The back checker outside had said pictures were possible for the first two minutes, but she couldn't tear her attention away from the band long enough to even blink a screenshot. What would it have captured anyway? Ghostly faces, a tinny recording? Nothing like the magnet in her gut drawing her toward the stage. The hollow quality changed, the second minute change the girl had mentioned, a momentary shimmer. Rosemary pressed her avatar up against the people in front of her, the closest she had been to strangers in, a, in her adult life. The hoodie gave a warning jolt, but the other people didn't notice, or if they noticed, they didn't care. A gap opened between two men in front, and she pushed through, hoping there wasn't etiquette against it. The space expanded before her, 
a highlighted path leading her to a better spot. She found herself in the front row and right of center, gazing up at the bassist, a tall, lean-shaven headed woman with skin so brown the hologram pushed it into purple. She wore jeans and a sleeveless t-shirt, showed off amazing biceps, and she was barefoot. She had a bruise under her left big toenail, which made her more real. Rosemary fought the urge to touch her. God, she fell in love easily, not that it ever led anywhere. Rosemary had always liked music, even if she didn't know much about it. She'd listen if somebody told her to listen to something, bought songs and posters of artists she enjoyed, but she'd never gone out seeking anything. She didn't know what was cool and what wasn't. She'd played this song, The Crash, after the hoodie arrived this evening, and it thought it was decent. Nothing like how it sounded now. Nothing had ever satisfied her the way writing code did. And now she was the code, and she was being overridden. The crash ended. Rosemary felt his absence as a physical loss. She placed her drink by her feet to clap, and a second later it disappeared. The lead singer stepped back to the mic. He shielded his eyes and peered out as if he saw them. The people in front of him hollered for attention he couldn't give them. Good to see you all. Good to be here at the Bloom Bar. His lips shimmered as he said the words Bloom Bar, as if they had been inserted separately. A lock of hair fell in his eyes and he brushed it aside. We're going to go ahead and play some songs for you, yeah? The bassist opened her eyes for the first time. Something caught her attention, something in whatever place she was actually in. She glanced down, shook her head, then looked straight at Rosemary and winked. It was the sexiest wink Rosemary had ever seen. She knew it hadn't been meant for her, but it might as well have been. She took a step forward before reminding herself she was an avatar, looking at an avatar of someone standing in a warehouse somewhere, where, a hundred or a thousand or three thousand miles away, someone who had just winked at somebody else. Rosemary refocused on the singer. Something shimmered above his head, and when she examined the link, she found a menu of optional enhancements and accessibility options. Subtitles, translation subtitles, vibration boost, visual description tags. Nothing she needed, but cool to know it was there. The next song began with a bass pulse. The bassist closed her eyes again, and Rosemary stepped back, trying to regain her composure. She examined the stage. From here, she could read the song titles on the set list at the bassist's feet, though she didn't recognize any of them after the crash. Ghost sweat rolled off the drummer's face, and he wiped it with the ghost forearm. What would it be like to have a subscription and relive these shows any time she wanted? To capture this band and have them to herself, go to more shows? Not for the first time. She wished she could do this every night. If Sport Hollow and TV Hollow were this real, that explained why her friends always looked at her with such pity when she and her family, when she said her family didn't go for any of it. She'd been missing out on so much. Encores are awkward in this situation, the lead singer said after the twelfth song. So we're all going to pretend that was our last song and we left the stage and you stomped and cheered until we came out to play one more. We'll play one more and then we'll go for real. Thanks for listening. Don't go, Rosemary wanted to say. Keep playing. It didn't matter that she didn't know the songs. The music had stirred something inside her. The real last song ended with a long cymbal splash and four ch-chunks of the guitar, which also wasn't the ending on any music she'd ever heard before. 
It had to be rehearsed, but it felt a little wild at the same time, a loose possibility that things might not work out as planned. The band members grinned at each other on the third chichunk, and the bassist raised one lo lovely eyebrow as she watched the drummer. The last note hung in the air, the singer gave a final salute, and then the band blinked from existence. They were there, and then gone, like magic, leaving a three-dimensional Stage Hollow Live logo floating in the place where they'd stood. It was followed by a voice saying, Patent Medicine Merchandise is for sale here, as well as Super Wally and Stage Hollow Live. Purchase now to wear instantly inside, or have the real thing droned to you by the time you get home. A recording filled the room, flat in comparison with what had been there a moment before. The lights came on. The room was much smaller than it had seemed in the dark, or maybe that was an illusion too. The ceiling lower, the walls closer, the floor scuffed and littered with bl plastic cuffs, which winked away a moment later. Most of the audience had already headed for the exit or blinked out from where they stood, but a few people still lingered by the bar, or stood blank and absent, probably buying patent medicine merchandise. A couple of t-shirts changed before her eyes. Rosemary understood the appeal. If there were a way to capture that first moment when the band had played the chord that had crashed into her, she'd buy it. A t-shirt wouldn't do that. Maybe, maybe a live recording. If not, she'd have to find a way to see them again. She could have pulled off the hoodie and disappeared from the room, but she wanted the full experience. Her ears rang as she walked out. There was a muffled quality to everything, like she had cotton wrapped around her. She stayed in the silent hood even after she had turned off the visual. She didn't want to lose the feeling she had walked out with. In her dream world, a, jo a job offer from Stage Hollow Live would be waiting when Rosemary checked her messages again, along with a drone delivery of a concert souvenir, a t-shirt maybe, or a poster to add to her bedroom collection, and a free Stage Hollow Live subscription. Or any of the above, she wasn't greedy. It wasn't until a message chimed in her work hoodie that she remembered she had ostensibly been there on business. Thank you for your help, the message read. She hadn't done anything, though she would have. She had to word this carefully so her own bosses didn't think she had charged fraudulent overtime or used their time to pursue something else. In the end, she decided on, I was happy to do it. It was useful for my professional development to experience how the Stage Hollow Live system works firsthand. Please let me know if I can be of any assistance in the future. She took off her work rig and replaced it with her fraying basic. Lay back on her bed, turned on audio of the crash again, closed her eyes. It wasn't as good as the live version. So we're going to take a 10 or 15 minute break, come up with some good ghost trivia questions, tell us, and then we'll vote. Well, no, that's the whole part. We want, we, we want it to be a really good question, right? If we don't care the answer, what's the point? Okay, we're going to take a 15 minute break. Uh, please buy books, buy drinks, and we'll be back. We'll be back with Sarah number two. Raise your hand if you're working on a question. I'll wait. Okay, we have one one person. Okay, I'll, I'll start reading the others. Okay. By the way, I'm, well, I will. I'll, well, because I have a lot to, to read. So by the time they finish, I'll read them all, and then 
Then we'll vote. Then we'll vote. Okay. Okay. Um, by the way, my name is Matt Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow, uh, the fantastic fiction at KGB. Thank you all for coming. Uh, the series has been going since the late 90s. Uh, Ellen and I have been doing it for a decade or more. Um, all we ask is that you buy a drink hard or soft to tip your bartenders and tip your bartenders because there's never a cover charge. We never charge you to come here, and we always have great readings. And uh, our authors, Sarah and Sarah, have books for sale. Um, we hope that you will uh, buy a book and support the authors and get uh, have them sign it because uh, who knows when, you, when you'll uh, be able to do that again. Um, so let me get on to the trivia, and then I'll uh, talk about uh, the upcoming readers. So the first trivia question we have is, and we're not going to vote. Well, I'm going to read them all until the end. There's actually quite a few, so I'll try to. Uh, guys, you need you need better handwriting. Um, hold on, I can't. I don't know what this word is. Let me see. Who's? Let me see. If I can read my own handwriting. What is that? Oh, wait. Who's dumber, dumber a, polter a poltergeist? Who's dumber, a poltergeist? That has a happy life or a poltergeist. Oh, who's dumber, comma. You need an editor. <laughs> a poltergeist, a poltergeist that, has, that a has a happy life, life or, or a poltergeist, poltergeist that has a miserable life? Question mark. There's no question. Um, that's question one. Number two. Which of the following is a strictly human ghost and not a vengeful spirit demon. The Wendig, Mogwai, Dibbuk, Yokai. Is that me? It's an Amber Alert. I've been getting them all day. Has anyone seen a black? I haven't seen a black Honda Civic. Um, okay, question number three. Ready? Uh, this ghostly phenomenon of this ghostly phenomenon of Joplin, Missouri, features a miniature sun that one chases off tourists, bounces off cars, stings horses. I'm not going to read the answer yet. Um, okay. What is the name of the sequel to the uh, Koji Suzuki? Is am I pronouncing that correct? Koji Suzuki infamous novel. I can't read that. <laughs> Runji. Ringu. 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 Oh, Ringu. Sorry, Ringu. Uh, on which the cult classic movie was based? That's a good question. <laughs> Okay. What famous French spiritualist made a name for herself by vomiting up ectoplasm with prints of ghostly faces, parentheses, later revealed to be cutouts from newspapers mixed with string and cheesecloth? In what novel does Charles Dickens tell a story about a haunted chair? I like that one. What is Hamlet's father's name? Uh, what famously haunted hotel was also the filming location for a movie starring Marilyn Monroe? 
who ghost wrote most of William Shatner's novels? <laughs> and then there's a there's a, a secondary question: Who bought a house with the proceeds? <laughs> or, or no, wait, I think that's the answer. Sorry, uh, I won't give you the name. Uh, la last last trivia question: Who is the first famous female ghost? Okay. So, everybody think about those. Do I, does anyone want me to reread any of them? Or, or we, well, I will, but any. All right. All right. So, I'm going to. All right. I'll read them again. And this time we're going to vote. Who's dumber? Comma. A poltergeist that has a happy life or a poltergeist that has a miserable life? Who wants to vote? No votes? Okay. What's the answer? That's like a Mensa question or something. Okay, that's number one. The answer, poltergeists aren't alive. I like that. Uh, we have zero votes. Uh, which of the following is a strictly human ghost and not a vengeful spirit demon? The Wendigo, Mogwai, Dibbuk, Yokai. Okay, you like it? Okay, that's one. I, I like it for mention of the Dybbuk, so I'm going to vote. Wait, do, can we vote more than once? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to vote. Oh. Um, what was, what's the answer to that? The Wendigo. Okay. Um, this ghostly. This is number three. This ghostly phenomenon of Joplin, Missouri, features a miniature sun that one chases off tourists, two bounces off cars, three stings horses. Uh, oh, oh, actually, no. I'm sorry. It does all of these things. Is that right? Is it? Wait, who wrote this? No, no, because the answer, I thought the, the question was one of the three, but it's, it's all of the three. All right, okay. So, uh, first of all, anyone want to vote for that one? Okay. Okay, the answer is the Joplin spook light. I like that. I gotta look that up. Is this recording? I just wanna make sure. Um, yeah, the light's on. Yeah, why not? Um, what is the name of the sequel to Koji Suzuki's infamous novel Ringu, on which the cult classic movie was based? Who wants to vote on that one? Okay. Um, and what is the answer? I don't know. The, the answer is not written down here, so I just have the person. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, next question. What famous French spiritualist made a name for herself by 
this one. Made a name for herself by vomiting up ectoplasm with prints of ghostly faces, later revealed to be cutouts from newspapers mixed with, mixed with string and cheesecloth. I'm voting for that one. That's great. Uh, great. Anyone want to blurt out the answer? Ava Carrier. Carrier. Oh, I'm keeping my hands up. Did you get that? Yeah. Okay. Next question. In what novel does Charles Dickens tell a story about a haunted chair? Anyone? I'm going to vote. I think chairs are scary. <laughs> okay. Okay, the answer is the Pickwick Papers. Uh, what is Hamlet's father's name? I'm going to vote for that. <laughs> it's Brad. They were looking for Brad. Uh, the answer is he is never named other than King Hamlet. Another Mensa question. Um, what famously haunted hotel was also the filming location for a movie starring Marilyn Monroe? I like that question. Famously haunted hotel. I don't know what the answer is. Can you say the hotel again? Hotel Del Coronado. Hotel Del Coronado. Coronado. The name of the movie is Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot. Oh, cool. Nice. I like that. <laughs> oh. Um, this is one of my favorite questions. Who ghost wrote <laughs> most of William Shatner's novels? Yeah, no, I'm going to answer. Oh, it is part of the question? And there's the answer on the bottom. It's Ron Goulart. <laughs> that is the answer. Ron Goulart, who bought a house with the proceeds. <laughs> Last question. Who is the first famous female ghost? Oh, that's such a smart one. I like that Come question. <laughs> I wonder who wrote that question. That is the last question. What was the answer? What was the answer? Wait, you asked the question? You just asked the question. Wait. You don't know? I don't know. I don't know if we can count that if you don't have the answer. What kind of trivia question is that? You go to the back of the book, it's like, we don't know. What's the winner? The winner is number five. Hold on. You've got 24. One, two, three, four. Uh, okay. The winner is, is it, wait, just I want to make sure I have the right one. Is this one? I can't see. 
Yes. Okay. The winner is what famous French spiritualist made a name for herself by vomiting up ectoplasm with prints of ghostly faces, later revealed to be cutouts from newspapers mixed with string and cheesecloth. Okay. Thank you all for participating. That was great. And I'm going to save these all because these are great. Uh, can we put those down? Okay. So uh, just real quick, and then we'll get started with uh, Sarah Beth Durst. Just a um, quick update on, on, re- on our um, upcoming readers. Oh, by the way, we have a mailing list. If you go to kgbfantasticfiction.org, uh, you can sign up for a mailing list. We do not spam. We send two or three emails a month just reminding you of what's going on here. Um, so uh, next month, October 16th, we have Nicole Corner Stace and Barbara Krasnov, who is here tonight. Yay! November 20th, David Mack, David Mack and Max Gladstone. Yay! December 18th, Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballingrid. January 15th, Cassandra Caw and Richard Cadry. February 19th, James Patrick Kelly and P. Deli Clark. Uh, March 18th, Robert Levy and Dan Brown. And April 15th, Clay McLeod Chapman and our favorite guest, TBA. Um, So yes, thank you all for uh, coming and supporting the series. Our our next reader is Sarah Beth Durst. Sarah is the author of 19 fantasy books for adults, teens, and kids, including the Queens of Renthia series, Drink, Slay, Love, and The Girl Who Could Not Dream. She won an ALA Alex Award and a Mythopoic Fantasy Award and has been a finalist for SFWA's Andre Norton Award three times. She hopes to one day have her own telepathic dragon. I know the feeling. Here's Sarah Beth Thurst. Thank you. This has been on my bucket list of writerly things I want to do. So thank you, Alan. Thank you, Matt, for inviting me. And thank you guys for coming. (laughs) Before I start, I need to do a show and tell because I got a box from my editor this week. And I brought in an ARC for my new book. And you guys have to go, ooh, pretty. (laughs) Thank you. It's It's called Race the Sands. And it comes out in April from Harper Voyager. And it's about a woman who is a trainer in the elite sport of monster racing. Uh, I'm reading to you tonight from my newest book, which is The Deepest Blue. This is a standalone epic fantasy. It is set in Renthia, which is a world full of bloodthirsty nature spirits. It is a world that I created for my epic fantasy trilogy, The Queens of Renthia, which starts with the Queen of Blood and Reluctant Queen and the Queen of Sorrow. This book is totally standalone, no spoilers, you don't have to have read the trilogy first. It came about because when I was writing The Queen of Blood, my editor asked me to draw a map. I get a map in my book, a key. I've always wanted a map in my book because I was that kid that would like get all the scrap paper and draw all these fantasy maps and then create all these magical beings and give them talking animal sidekicks because I desperately want a talking animal sidekick. Um, So I got to have a map in my book. And I drew these islands at the bottom 
and I just started worrying about them. This is this land that's filled with bloodthirsty nature spirits. How are these people surviving in these little islands out in the sea surrounded by malicious ocean spirits? So this book is my answer. I'm going to read three passages from it, starting from the beginning. And resisting the urge to say, which is a very good place to start. Okay. <clears throat> Death is blue. Black-blue churned by storms. Green-blue stained by kelp. Pale blue bleached by sun, the turquoise blue of the sea's shallows and the deepest blue of its depths. On the dawn of her wedding day, Mayara knotted her diving belt around her waist and climbed the skull of a long dead sea monster. At the top, she straddled the eye socket and looked down. Below, far below, the ancient skull was cracked and within the fissure was a deep pool of water so still that it looked like glass. She imagined it would shatter when she dived into it. Breathe, she told herself. Just breathe. She'd never done this dive before. It was known to be one of the trickiest on all the islands of Belene. But today was special. Today I marry my best friend. It's a perfect day to defy death. Or, as she used to say when her sister ran off to try a new dive, to dramatically meet it. She eyed the barnacle-encrusted rocks far below on the edges of the fissure. So easy to die, impaled on the rocks, neck broken, body sliced, so hard to live. One opening, just a little wider than a vertical human body. You had to hit it just right, perfectly straight, arms in front of you pressed against your ears. I can do it, she thought. I will do it. She told no one where she was going, especially Kilo, though she knew he'd guess. He knew her better than anyone. At dawn, she'd slipped out of her window and run down the winding path. The seagulls were already awake, cawing over the fish up in the shallows. A few clam diggers were on the beach, bent over their shovels, and the grandmothers, the eldest villagers, were already at the end of the rock jetties with their favorite fishing rods. None of them had paid any attention to Mayara. They were used to her sprinting out of the village at odd hours, clutching her diving belt with its assortment of knives and pouches whenever the urge to dive struck her. But today's dive wasn't a whim. She'd planned this in honor of her sister. Exactly eight years ago today, when Mayara was 11 and Alorna was 16, Alorna had done this very dive. She'd come back exhilarated with her pouches full of abalone and woken up Mayara by emptying her pouches onto Mayara's bed. My quilt stank like fish for a week. But Alorna had been so excited, and Mayara had been so happy that her beloved sister had come to her first, bypassing their parents, her friends, everyone, to share the moment with Mayara. It's so peaceful down there, Lorna had said. Like everything that ever upset you drifted away, and there's no past and future, only the blue all around you. Death is blue, Mayara had said automatically. It was an islander saying. Alorna had laughed. I'll tell you a secret. Death can't catch you if you chase death. While it looks for you here, she tapped Mayara's nose. You'll really be here. She grabbed Mayara's hand and yanked her out of the house. Yelping, Mayara stumbled along behind her. Alorna, I'm not dressed, and that doesn't make sense. If you chase death, you're just more likely to die. But Alorna had only laughed again and kept running, dragging her little sister with her through the still asleep village, all the way to the shore and straight into the shallows. Without releasing Mayara's hand, she'd pulled her into the ocean, and they'd plunged into the breaking waves together. It was one of Mayara's favorite memories. 
If Alorna were here today on Mayara's wedding day, she'd have woken Mayara early and dragged her off on some adventure, climbing to the top of a cliff or discovering a new secret alcove. Or they'd have swum out to one of the rocks in the bay to watch the sea spirits at sunrise or borrowed a boat and dared the dangers of the reef. But Alorna wasn't here, and so I'll dive. I have to live enough for both of us now. Mayara breathed deeply, then exhaled, pushing all the air out of her lungs. She inhaled one more time, then gasped like a fish on land in order to suck in extra puffs to fill both her lungs to capacity. When her lungs were so stuffed, she felt as if they would burst. She leaped up and out, bent in half, then kicked her legs behind her. Straight as an arrow, she sliced through the air. She felt the wind in her face, heard its shriek, and saw the sliver of blue straight below her. Arms straight over her head, she pressed her palms together as if in prayer, and then she pierced the water. So she swims. She almost dies. It's very exciting. <laughs> and she gets married. It's lovely. There's a seafood buffet. Ooh, and that brings us. <laughs> then during the wedding, long ago, Ranthia was only four countries. The forests of Erete, the mountains of Simo, the farmlands of Chell, and the glaciers of Elhim. Their queens tamed the spirits of the land, the spirits of earth, tree, air, water, fire, and ice, by bonding with them, and humankind flourished within their borders. But there are no borders in the ever-moving sea, and so the wild, unclaimed spirits that lived in the Ionian Sea attacked the land, killing with their teeth and their waves until the queens united and drove them back slaying many and forcing the worst and the largest of the monsters into an uneasy slumber many fathoms below, in a region of sea known in stories and songs as the deepest blue. The islands of Baleen were formed from the bones of the giant spirits the queens killed as a barrier to protect the mainland from the krakens and sea dragons and other leviathans. For generations, each queen of Baleen had been ever vigilant, using all her power to keep the largest of the leviathans asleep, and relying on the heirs to protect the islanders from the rest. Whenever wild spirits seek to attack the islands, the queen senses their approach and dispatches her heirs to repel them, except when she doesn't. Mayara felt the storm in her bones. It hurt the same way it hurt when she dived deep without a proper breath, as if her body wanted to tear itself apart from the inside, as if her skin didn't fit, as if her blood were boiling. First, it was wind. Screaming as it came, it flew across the sea and onto the shore. It bent the trees until they bowed, their tips touching the sand. It tore at the houses, ripping the shutters from the windows and the clay tiles from their roofs. Second, it was waves. Rising up in massive swells, the waves slammed into the island, flooding the homes that were closest to shore, destroying gardens and drowning livestock. Third, it was monsters. The wild spirits rode in on the wind and the waves. Most were water spirits, so a few were air. Some looked like winged eels. Others were human-like, but with claws and sharp teeth. And one was a dragon-like sea serpent. All were deadly. Get back into the caves, Papa was yelling. He, along with others possessed of booming voices, were herding the villagers back from the cliff wall. A few of the more foolhardy tried to run toward the path, down to the village to protect their homes, but they were intercepted by their neighbors. 
They cursed their neighbors now, but would hopefully thank them later. Little kids were scooped up by anyone who could carry them. The elderly were carried too. One woman on Uncle Emer's back, another by a fisherwoman who regularly hauled nets into the boats, another by two of Mayara's cousins. Grabbing Kilo's hand, Mayara ran for the storm shelter caves. Rain was already pelting the plaza, hard rain that hit as if it were pebbles. She shielded her eyes with her hands so she could see where she was running. At the mouth of the cave, Papa stopped her. Did you see your mother? He had to shout to be heard over the wind. Mayara shook her head. I thought she was with you. No, she wasn't. She let go of Kilo's hand. Mayara, it's not safe, Kilo cried. You have to get in the cave. But Mayara was already plunging back through the rain, which was falling in diagonal sheets so thick it felt like buckets of water being dumped on her head. She could barely see more than a few feet in front of her. The wind and waves were so loud that she couldn't tell who was screaming, the weather, the spirits, or her people. Mother, where are you? She heard a giggle in her head, razor sharp. She veered left, aware away from where she sensed the spirit to be, and pressed forward a step at a time. She knew where Mother had been, near the ceremony platform, and she knew loosely which direction it was in, even if she couldn't see it. Something swept past her, grazing her arm, and she built back a cry. If I can't see them, they can't see me. She didn't know if this was true, though. The wild spirits had created the storm. Surely they could navigate through it. Keeping silent, Mayara pushed on until at last she saw a shape, a human figure. I'm skipping a little. She pulls her mother back. She brings her back across. Lots of dead bodies, lots of rain. Many, many monsters. <laughs> and then Mayara saw a black blur ahead, the cave. She pushed mother ahead of her into the cave, and she heard a familiar voice cry her name. Mayara! Kilo rushed out and grabbed her arm. As sudden as a scream, she felt a spirit attack. Its shriek echoed inside her, scraping her throat as if it were her own cry. It swiped at Kilo with its razor claws. Beside her, he crumpled. Kilo! Dragging him into the cave, she turned back toward the plaza. She saw only wind, rain, and spirits. Mayara, get back, Papa yelled at her. The spirits were coming for the cave. She could sense their... They weren't thoughts, precisely. It was a whirlwind of need and want. They wanted blood, death, and pain. They wanted in. The opening of the cave was large enough only for one person. I could block it. I could stop them, stop this. She didn't know if that was true. She'd never used her power against so many or face spirits who were so lost in their bloodlust. Might make it worse if she used her power by drawing even more spirits toward the villagers. And in that moment, she had a sudden terrible thought that she had caused this when she'd used her power during the dive. But no, the spirits she'd encountered were island spirits bonded to the Queen of Baleen. These were wild spirits. She called back to Papa. Is he alive? Kilo, does he live? Papa yelled, yes, but you need to get inside. Come where it's safe. But it wasn't safe. The spirits knew where the cave was now. They'd seen Mother and Mayar run into it. They were calling to one another. No, that wasn't right. They're calling to one other, a sea dragon. She could feel the shape of the water spirit in her mind, larger than any of the houses in her village, large enough to crush a fishing boat with a serpent's body and a bat's wings. And then it wasn't just in her mind. It burst through the rain, appearing midair in front of the cave. Its scales were black as a night sky, but flashed like the sea in sunlight. 
Its eyes were fire red and seemed to flicker. Its wings drove the wind toward my arm. She threw back her arm in front of her face as water, carried by the wind, slammed her into her within the cave. She felt the spirit's rage. It will kill us all. She felt hands pulling on her arms. Papa and Kilo and the others were shouting, Mayara, get back. But she shook the hands off and stepped forward out of the cave. Squinting in the driving rain, Mayara stared up at the dragon. She thought of the dive within the ancient Leviathan skull and of her sister Lorna who had braved even more frightening dives and of Kilo who waited for Mayara, always trusting she'd return to him. Trust me one more time, my love. I can do this. I will do this. Mayara had heard the stories. The heirs kept the islands safe. They sent the wild spirits back into the sea. But Mayara didn't have the training or the strength of the heirs. She had only herself. And she didn't think she could command more than one spirit at a time. So she chose the dragon. And she crafted a single order. Protect us. The sea dragon resisted. She felt it screech within her head. And it was almost enough to shatter her mind. Gritting her teeth against the onslaught, she held the command steady, focusing all her will and intent. Protect us now. The dragon, struggling against itself now, spun in the air. And the other spirits tried to attack the cave. Their dragon fought them. Sinuit slid through the rain-choked air, and it snatched the flying eel-like serpents mid-flight and flung them back over the cliff. It smashed its tail into a human-like air spirit who was running across the plaza, teeth bared and claws extended. Above you, Mayara called to it, and she showed it in her mind what she saw, a trio of spirits shaped like a mass of white birds, with blood spattered on their white feathers diving at the dragon from above. The dragon twisted in the air as if it were swimming in water, knocking into them and bit the neck of the first one, shaking it like a dog shakes its prey, then tossing it aside. Soon the rain began to slacken. She felt the wind lessen. Her dragon continued to defend the cave. The rain faded to a drizzle. The wind fell until it was no more than a breeze. Mayara began to shiver hard, her dress soaked and heavy, her hair wet and sticking to her skin. Pivoting in the air, the dragon fixed its fire-red eyes on her. She felt as if she'd dived too far beneath the water. Black dots danced in her vision, but she held on. And as if she had been given a second breath, she was able to push back. Go, she ordered, return to the sea. It screamed once more, both out loud and in her head, and Mayara fell to her knees, hard on the stone, and clapped her hands over her ears. But the cry went on and on, receding only as a dragon flew away over the waves. She looked up and saw that the clouds had dissipated and that during the storm the sun had finished setting. Stars began to appear overhead, and the moon glowed heavy and full, through the remaining black wisps of the unnatural typhoon. Mayara got to her feet, her knees aching. Her mind felt dull and empty. She silently counted the dead. Nine, twelve, fifteen. She knew them all, loved them all. Slowly she turned to face the cave. Kilo limped out, supported by Papa. They crossed to her and Kilo fell into his arms. She held him and then sank down onto the ground. They'll come for you, Kilo said. They'll take you. She couldn't think of what to say. Looking up, she saw her parents were crying, their arms around each other. Others had formed a semicircle, all of them staring at Mayara and Kilo. There were no words for anyone to say. She'd saved them, but in doing so, she doomed herself. Queen Asana of Belin wished, not for the first time, she could chuck her crown into the sea. 
Not literally, of course. The crown itself was a lovely band of black, ivory, and pink pearls that was at least a century old, which coincidentally was about how old Asana felt after she'd heard the news that a 12th spirit sister had been identified and captured. She'd received the news from her least favorite nobleman, Lord Marty, whose oh-so-polite letter had informed her that he and the other families were delivering the women for their final training. The twelfth woman had been discovered after a spirit storm had devastated her fishing village, a storm that had hit in the exact location Queen Asana had predicted on the southern shore of the island of Alaku, but the families had decided to dispatch the hares to protect the Naran stronghold on the northern shore near the city of Cow instead. It had gotten a bit breezy there. Innocent islanders died with the Naran family snug and safe in their fortress and guarded by the most powerful woman in Belene lost a few petals from their fancy rose bushes. If this woman hadn't stepped in, it was probable that they all would have died. And how do I repay her? By ruining and endangering her life. Stomping into her private chambers, Asana scooped up a probably priceless heirloom pillow off a couch, squeezed it against her face, and screamed into it. Sadly, it did not make her feel better. A voice spoke up from one of the other reclining couches. You could try poisoning someone. That always makes me feel better. With as much dignity as she could manage, Asana restored the pillow to the couch and fluffed it back to its original plumpness. She'd forgotten that she'd requested her new advisor join her after the meeting. Her advisor had been, in fact, waiting for Asana already when she'd stormed into her chambers. Keeping her voice mild, Asana said, I'm never quite sure when you're joking and when you're serious. Her new advisor was from Arete, where she'd held a position of importance in the Aretean Queen's palace. Her name was Lady Garna. I've been told that's part of my charm, Lady Garna smiled cheerfully. An older woman with a fondness for many layered lace ruffled skirts, Garna did everything cheerfully, from eating pineapple, which she was currently doing with juice dripping off her chin, to assisting in the major trauma ward in the healer's school, which she'd done this morning. Asana found her relentless joy to be both refreshing and fascinating, perhaps because it's so different from my relentless doom and gloom. Come now, the garishly dressed woman said, patting beside her. Tell O'Garna your problems, and I'll tell you who to kill to fix them. Never met a problem that a little murder couldn't solve. Asana laughed. She hadn't expected to ever laugh again. It's the families, Asana said, specifically the family Neron. Several days ago, I told them a spirit storm was approaching their island, and they chose to defend their own home rather than help the people actually in danger. Can't you overrule them? You're the queen. A title that comes with surprisingly little power, Sana said. He'll probably try to kill you at some point, she mused out loud. Families didn't like anyone they couldn't control. They can try, Garna said. I'm remarkably difficult to kill. She popped another chunk of pineapple into her mouth. Uh, but just so I can be prepared, who precisely do you think will try to kill me? Everyone, Sana said. Welcome to Belene. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So now that you've gotten a taste of both of these wonderful books, I hope that you will come and buy them and have the author sign them. And the uh, winner of Echoes, Rick Bowes is here. He's in the book. He can sign it too if he feels like it. So come on up. And thank you for coming. Hang out. You don't have to leave yet. And please come next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. 
recorded live at the KGB Bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.